We might go on to our final presentation, which is to be delivered remotely this afternoon from Dr. Paula Case of the University of Liverpool. Uh, Dr. Case is a senior lecturer in the School of Law and Social Justice at the University of Liverpool, and her presentation is titled, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Regulator? Interrogating Causal Narratives in Defensive Medicine Research. Hello, my name's Paula Case and I'm a senior lecturer in law at the University of Liverpool. I'm really sorry not to have been able to join you all today. I hope you've had a very enjoyable seminar in Brisbane. Um, recording a paper is a very odd experience. I've learnt um, quite a lot of things that surprisingly recording with the mute button on is not very effective. So this is now attempt number three. Concerns about defensive practice in medicine have been an enduring undercurrent in medical law. The main cause of defensive medicine is frequently identified as being rising personal injury claims and the role of professional regulation has until recently been relatively neglected. But changes in funding for medical negligence litigation in the UK and a more proactive regulator of the medical profession, the General Medical Council, or GMC, may mean that this causal narrative needs to be adjusted in light of the current medical legal landscape. This paper is very much a work in progress, reporting very early observations from a project seeking to provide further insights into doctors' perceptions of defensive practice in medicine. It draws from interviews with doctors practicing in England and Wales, including hospital doctors and GPs. Early observations relate very much to the epistemic limitations of research into defensive medicine, making generalising about the relative causes exceedingly difficult. Research into the incidence and impact of defensive medicine stretches back at least four decades, and although the import and extent of defensiveness appears to be in the eye of the beholder, it's possible to identify at least two key areas of broad consensus in defensive, defensive medicine discourse. The first, what might be called the universality of defensive medicine across jurisdictions and specialities. A brief survey of studies conducted across multiple jurisdictions reveals a startling consensus that between 70 and 98% of medical practitioners when interviewed or surveyed will report themselves as adopting strategies of defensive medicine in their practice. And these results emerge from studies conducted in the United States by Kessler, in Australia by Nash, in the UK by Otashi, in Japan, Italy and Southeast Iran to name but a few. There's also kind of general recognition in defensive practice research that defensive medical practice is multifactorial. For example, Professor Harpwood identified defensive practice in medicine with hyperregulation combined with a fear of civil litigation, but also the threat of prosecution. Now, having said that, it's still the case that civil litigation is generally regarded as being a prominent, if not the overwhelming factor in triggering or accelerating defensive practice. There are reasons, however, to assume that in the UK at least, fear of action by the profession's regulator, the GMC, may now be a more significant driver of defensive medical decision-making than was thought to be the case in the past. The likelihood of action from the regulator has increased substantially over the last decade. So I'm going to use a very rudimentary calculation, and I warn you that maths is not my strong point, um, but we can start by looking at the number of doctors who are um, on the register and then are subject to regulatory action. Um, so in 2015, there were over 273,000 doctors named on the UK, UK's medical register, maintained by the GMC. Um, and this graph depicts in sequence, first in column number one, 
the number of doctors on the register, then in column number two, the number with complaints made against registered practitioners to the regulator. In column number three, we can see the number who faced a GMC investigation. Um, and column number four, the number facing a final fitness to practice hearing um, after an investigation, and these are held in the Medical Practitioners Tribunal Service. Now, although the percentage of registrants who become subject to a fitness to practice hearing each year is reported as being tiny, and indeed is almost invisible on this chart, just looking at the number of hearings does not provide a full picture of the threat of action by the regulator. So we're going to turn now to look at particularly GMC investigations. Investigations um, do suggest a fairly hefty increase over the last 10 years, with a modest but significant decline in the last few years. So just under 400 investigations in 2007, but in recent years regularly five times that number, peaking in 2013 with 3,055 investigations and just under 2,000 in 2015. So for 2015 this equates to investigations each year against just under 1% of registered doctors who are also licensed to practice. Now, assuming that investigations are broadly equally distributed amongst practitioners and that practitioners might have a 40-year career in medicine, that wouldn't be abnormal, this suggests there is close to a one in two chance that a doctor can expect a GMC investigation in the course of their career. However, although the likelihood of investigation by the GMC is very low and declining, and most doctors are exonerated after an investigation, the process of investigation can have far-reaching impact on the practitioner concerned and their ability to practice. For example, doctors who are the subject of a GMC investigation um, can be the subject of far-reaching draconian powers, uh, for example, being suspended in the interim whilst an investigation is ongoing and before any allegations have been proved. And this is a power which has been used increasingly recently um, again sort of rising over the last 10 years but then subject to a fairly recent um, decline. Now, these powers exist under section 41A of the Medical Act 1983. Um, interim suspensions can be ordered for up to 18 months before a court has to review them and they can be um, renewed almost indefinitely. In R on the application of Shelton against GMC, the judge described the impact of one of these interim suspension orders on the doctor concerned in the following terms. Short of losing his liberty, he's lost absolutely everything. He's had an overnight cessation of all his income. He's lost his home. He's had to sell his home. He's lost his ability to co-parent his children um, as his wife has left him. And this is all before any allegations have been proved. There's also been a lot of coverage in the medical press of um, investigations into suicides amongst investigated doctors, um, namely the Horsfile report. But of course, um, charting changes in the regulatory landscape um, and looking at what things have been reported through the medical press gives us only limited and largely speculative insight into defensive practice. As Professor Karen Paz has pointed out, it's the doctor's perceptions of the risks of litigation and sanctions which triggers defensiveness rather than the reality of these sanctions. 
But given this general upward trajectory over the last decade of what might be described as fitness to practice activity by the GMC and the conclusions of widely publicised reports such as Horsfall documenting suicides amongst doctors being investigated, the rational doctor could be expected to place more weight now on disciplinary processes and in particular the risk of a GMC investigation uh, in their causal narratives of defensive practice than perhaps in the past. So this is one of the things I hoped to explore in my interviews and so far I've done my 10 pilot interviews Um, and when I did these interviews I used a definition of defensive practice which I'd taken from um, John Chamberlain's book um, in 2013 um, where he defines defensive medical practice as when a diagnostic or therapeutic measure is used by a doctor as a means of protection against possible accusations of negligence or underperformance rather than because their patient really needs them. As this definition focuses on defensive interventions, I supplemented it with Tim Bourne's categorizations of hedging, um, which he uses to mean positive interventions motivi- motivated by defensive considerations, um, and um, avoidance, um, which he uses to mean um, avoidance of patients or procedures um, for defensive reasons. It's too early, really, for any reliable findings to have emerged from this research. Um, so these are very, very preliminary observations. First of all, that when talking about um, doctors' own understandings of defensive medicine, and then using Chamberlain Bourne's definitions of defensive medicine, um, all doctors interviewed um, had no shortage of examples in their own practice of. Um, defensive medicine. They all identified heavily with hedging in their own practice, um, or what we might call positive interventions applied because of defensive considerations. So um, whether it was ordering more blood tests, more CT scans, more lumbar punctures, and because of impossibly small non-quantifiable risks of death, um, whether it was increasing the number of x-rays for patients with coughs or chest pains, or particularly patients who smoked, increasing the number of follow-up appointments with patients um, to check how they were doing or in the way that they were documenting um, headaches or taking notes in a defensive frame of mind. Um, There were lots and lots of examples and in most instances these were clearly regarded as fairly benign examples of defensive medicine. They were spoken of as incurring little additional burden on manpower or budget. But there was a recognition of harm or lost opportunities for other patients in some instances. For example, keeping patients in a hospital when they could be discharged um, not infrequently exposed their patients to other harms such as hospital-acquired infections. So this would tend to kind of generally shore up the idea that um, that hedging positive interventions for defensive considerations Um, is a very common experience amongst our doctors. When it came to avoidance, um, interviewees generally struggled much more to be able to identify concrete examples of avoidance in their own practice, but they could identify perhaps um, examples of avoidance from other people's practice that they were aware of. Um, Some identified examples in the context of surgery, for example, cancellation of procedures for rubbish reasons, um, concerns that the patient was too high a risk, resulting in delays in that person getting um, 
vital surgery, um, but usually another surgeon on the list would pick it up later on. Um, some identified not doing work, work which was perceived as medico-legally hazardous, so a, a general awareness, for example, that filling out of hours GP work was very difficult because people would avoid that work because of the medical-legal risks, um, and a number identified particular patients who they knew were generally avoided um, but would um, eventually be treated. And they were avoided because um, they perhaps had a family who were reputedly quite litigious. So that's consistent with other studies that um, avoidance is less frequently reported by doctors who are surveyed or interviewed. Now, when it came to um, causal narratives, looking at the relative causes and triggers for defensive medicine, particularly weighing the fear of litigation against the fear of action by the GMC, a number admitted to not really understanding the difference between an investigation by their regulator and being sued, or if they did, they couldn't say that defensive medicine was triggered by one rather than the other. Rather, they had this corroborative composite effect along with the risk of criminal prosecution, which was frequently mentioned independently of the questions as, a, as being a significant um, concern. There are some themes which seemed, however, to be emerging quite strongly. For example, civil litigation, generally perceived by interviewees as more likely to happen than a GMC investigation. This was not just because of the perceived frequency of litigation, but also an assumption that the GMC was not really concerned with good doctors who made errors in clinical judgment, but with problem doctors. Um, Accordingly, some interviewees did not regard GMC fitness to practice procedures as relevant to them, whereas the risk of litigation gave rise to a lottery effect. It could arise out of a simple error, it could happen to anyone, and this increased the fear factor of litigation. So litigation was more likely to happen, but the likelihood of a GMC investigation was clearly perceived as increasing over time. It was commonly regarded as a looming inevitability, or in the words of one doctor, it's only a matter of time because it comes to us all at some point. And another interviewee estimated, after attending a seminar on professional disciplinary proceedings, there was now a 1 in 10 chance of investigation each year. These all seem to be um, an overstatement of the true risk of an investigation, but the GMC itself has corroborated the idea that doctors will be subject to at least one investigation during their career. In an annual accountability hearing before Parliament in 2015, GMC investigations were described as an occupational hazard. Professor Stevenson, chair of the GMC, said he had personally been investigated by the GMC twice. So GMC investigations are perceived as increasing over time and the impact of a GMC investigation is perceived generally as far more substantial than a civil claim. So when fear of litigation and investigation were compared, um, most interviewees regarded themselves as somehow protected or insulated from the impact of civil litigation. It wouldn't impact on them as directly and more support, particularly from the defence unions, was available. So the risk of being sued would be pretty unpleasant, but the defence union would deal with it and there was relatively little imposition um, on the doctor themselves. Um, a GP who had not been investigated had a similar view. You pay your defence union subs in civil litigation and let a lawyer um, sort things out. They have their own professional witnesses. You just let them sort the situation out. So for civil litigation, there was a perceived cocooning effect, but for a GMC investigation, that support was widely perceived as absent. 
My investigation by the GMC could, of course, be an end to a doctor's career in medicine and the impact was perceived as very far-reaching. This was reported as being partly due to the length of time taken to um, bring GMC investigations to a close. Yet litigation probably takes longer. A perception that the GMC were harsher judges than perhaps the courts and that the fact of investigation would be published. It would be on the internet. So the GMC investigation had implications for the doctors' um, professional identity, their whole lives and who they were as doctors. Um, and irrespective of the outcome, the process was regarded as unpleasant and stressful. And given the choice, one doctor said she would rather be investigated. Sorry, she would be rather be sued than be investigated by the GMC. Given that choice, but for a number of doctors, it was the perceived absence of any real exoneration which loomed large for interviewees when thinking about the magnitude of a GMC investigation. Um, so one GP said that if someone reports you to the GMC and they investigate and find there's no case to answer, the matter would still be kept on file just in case. Uh, another GP went further noted that being exonerated by the GMC would never be enough to absolve that practitioner from the reputational stain of the investigation. Everyone you'd worked with would have been informed an investigation was underway, but after an exoneration there was no attempt to inform those colleagues um, that charges had not been proved, and this was hugely detrimental. So there seems to be a keen awareness that the risk of being investigated is increased, that investigation is of far greater import and significance to doctors than being sued, and that the lasting reputational stain is a big factor in their fear of being investigated. Now it's vital that the doctors regulated the GMC does what it can and plays its part in containing the harms of defensive practice, and in particular seeking to prevent its own activities from contributing to the pull to practice defensively. Statute prescribes the GMC's objective as the protection of the public, which is expansively defined in our Medical Act um, to include advancing the health, safety and well-being of the public, um, maintaining public confidence in the profession and proper standards of conduct for the profession. Excessively defensive clinical practice is not in patients' interests and runs counter to each part of the GMC's overarching objective. It can undermine the health, safety and well-being of patient populations generally by wasting resources which would otherwise be available for those who need them. And excessive defensiveness is not a proper standard of conduct and if made known can clearly dent public confidence. The problem might be conceptualised as one of Hymer's allocation of attention. A regulator's focus is often on how to ensure individuals prioritise the right thing. Chamberlain's definition of defensive medical practice um, shows these objectives um, of the doctor, the therapeutic interest of the patient um, and the self-oriented need to avoid recrimination. Um, being put in the wrong order, the question then becomes how can the regulator help to redress the balance by incentivising practitioners to focus primarily on the interests of their patient rather than on the fear of complaint or recrimination, and good quality research could usefully inform a regulator's approach here. Um, but there are problems inherent in this kind of research. For example, most of the cross-jurisdictional studies of defensive medical practice ask doctors to report on defensive medicine in their own practice, um, 
but those studies identify the possibility of selection bias or confirmation bias in that those volunteering to participate are more likely to identify with defensive practice, hence their agreement to get involved in the first place. Recent research by Biker et al. Um, in 2015 also found that survey framing could make a big difference to reported rates of defensive practice. Um, they did uh, a medical malpractice survey and then replicated the same questions in a cost-effective care survey and it produced significantly, though not massively, um, different levels of reported defensive practice. So survey respondents are perhaps mirroring what they think the researcher hopes to find. Um, related to this, it was clear that um, doctors I interviewed were researching the researcher using ResearchGate. So before the interview, um, the night before, I'd get a prompt or a, a poke or whatever you call it telling me that somebody um, in Liverpool, which is where my interview was about to happen, had just looked me up on ResearchGate and reliably before every interview I did, that happened. Uh, and so perhaps the interviewee was trying to gauge the perspective of the researcher and it's possible they felt they were being judged by someone outside their discipline who was perhaps not empathetic to the pressures to practice defensively. Um, but that's quite worrying in terms of how reliable um, their accounts might be or what they might choose to emphasise in interviews. Further, research which tells us that doctors themselves identify defensiveness in their own conduct often tells us very little about the relative weight that defensiveness actually plays in day-to-day -day medical judgments. Is it affecting decision-making every day for every patient, once a week, once every few months? And what is the gravity of that defensiveness? Is it merely to spend a few extra minutes after appointments typing up patient notes, which may be regarded as clinically unnecessary, or is it to recommend invasive procedures which are not medically indicated, and what's the frequency of that? So for the purposes of my research, this all means I have a lot of thinking to do before conducting any more um, interviews. Thank you very much for listening.